Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Another exciting week in seafood. Uh, some breaking news came out on Friday, um, and you know it's it's a bit of the of a sign of the times. I think, um, in a way, I think we floated through uh, 2020 um, without seeing too many companies going to the wall and going bankrupt. Um, but certainly, we know that a lot of companies struggled. Um, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've seen earnings coming out for companies. Uh, the salmon companies certainly had their fair share of struggles giving their exposure to the food service sector and restaurants with all the closures. But the real winners turned out to be the frozen fish processors, which typically have been um, the ones kind of on the losing end when things are uh, when, when times are when times are good. Um, however, John, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your story this morning. Um, Black Pearl Seafood uh, what was actually the brand. It's a company called Martin International that's been representing uh, representing Loch Duart for a long time. The the Scottish uh, the Scottish uh, salmon farmer. So um, yeah, what what was behind their their collapse? And then uh, let's talk a little bit about that particular sector of the importers and exporters and the pressures they face. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. Uh, Richard Martin's the CEO of, uh, as you said, Martin International, and um, you know the company's been around since '85. Importer exporter, you know, a trader more or less, um, and wild salmon farm salmon some scallops and some other things too so um we saw an announcement earlier that the the black pearl brand which is their trademark and their brand was sold to a superior foods company it's a distributor based in michigan that distributes lots of different seafood you know almost any company you can name in seafood seems to be under under them in the sense that they buy and distribute their products so you know, when I talked to uh, when I talked to Dick uh, earlier today, it's clearly uh, you know he's a victim of um, COVID. You know, in the sense that his company couldn't make it through um, all the disruption. Uh, you know, he he said basically they c- couldn't extend credit, and they couldn't uh, they couldn't expand their business in, in a way that would see them through the rough time here so he folded up the uh, enterprise uh, in the fall around September I guess and uh, and sold you know the main asset of the company which is which is this brand we don't know what the new owners are going to do with the brand Uh, we expect obviously that they're going to you know bring it back to life so to speak but uh, yeah I mean that in a nutshell that's that's the story well, and interesting enough, it, you know, it comes, um, the news anyway, comes on the heels of Lock Duart um, kind of launching its own sort of U.S. Uh, strategy. And, and what I find interesting is, you know, these traders over the course of, you know, well, I mean, t- the past two decades, but over the course of, say, the last five years in particular, we've really seen a lot of these small traders get gobbled up or strike partnerships or um, or just disappear um, because it's kind of the way of the industry um, because we are seeing these uh, these larger companies 
um, that have the ability to come in um, and, and are for fully vertically integrated. Um, and so, it's, you know, a salmon trader or essentially a salmon focused trader like Martin International, they're the kind of companies that uh, are really, really going to struggle. And I think um, they have been for a while feeling that pressure, especially as raw material prices have in general trended upward uh, and retailers have in general uh uh, pressured and food service companies have in general pressured down back on the other side of, of margins. So I think it's just a sign um, again that COVID has sped up uh, trends that were already in place. But, um, you know, the U.S. industry in particular is full of a lot of these trading companies. And I, I can imagine that, um, you know that that Martin International isn't going to be the last one that's going to um, that's going to be forced to make a decision like this. Yeah, maybe not. Um, I mean, you know, it's not that uh, traders slash importers exporters don't add value um, necessarily because you know they help uh, buyers navigate tough times uh, getting products sometimes. But you know, companies today that aren't adding value from the sense of processing the product, marketing the product, doing, doing, a, you know, being integrated, so to speak. Um, the, the, the room for them is really shrinking. I, as you, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a vulnerable category in, in the industry and probably will continue to, you know, size down as, as time goes on. It just, you know, their need is just, uh, the need for them is just not what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about all, you know, there's so many, for example, in shrimp that don't actually have any formal relationships with suppliers, for example, or farmers. Um, and are kind of in the same spot where they're just trading on these really skinny little margins. Um, and trying to make it, um, and then you have um, companies that can afford to um, to take a little loss to to gain some business, and um, and and so so it's interesting. And I think again, COVID. Anybody that's more food service focused, um, if they made it through last year, that's remarkable. You have you have a, a less kind of fragmentation on the European market in in terms of these um, these trading relationships, but similarly, you are again this the M and A trend isn't anything new, um, but you are seeing it speed up. Um, you're seeing smaller companies that have carved out a, a niche for themselves. Um, kind of be in a position where maybe they're being offered, uh, you know, offered uh, 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 by one of the larger companies to be bought out, or um, they're just kind of realizing, hey, we can't, we can't really compete. Uh, we can't get the retailers and the buyers what they need. So um, it's an interesting trend. And as I said, on the other side of that, you know, looking at um, some of the earnings of uh, these larger frozen fish processors, that's been the real. <laughs> surprise has been just the renaissance for these groups um bird's eye igloo in europe nomad foods their parent has just seen um just massive sales volume um frosta in germany again same just gone just 
bananas um, as people have turned into turned to frozen foods. Um, and so you've you've seen that across the the board. Highliner, another great example. So it's been. Um, it's been interesting to watch because, you know, I would have guessed over time just in kind of tracking this that these processors were going to be the ones that were the most vulnerable over as we were kind of looking at it from a longer scale and saying, hmm, if you don't sit on raw material, if you don't control or own quota or farms, um, you're going to be in trouble now. I don't think the trend's going to be for more processors to pop up, but it, it is interesting because it shows that frozen uh, and consumer brands are not by any means dead yet as standalone companies, which I find interesting. Uh, no, it, and it's funny you mentioned that because last night I was going to the grocery store to get not seafood, get hot dogs and hot dog buns. What? Don't ask. Don't ask. Just leave it be. And uh, I went past the frozen seafood case. And any, anything that was a fish stick type of product, the, the case just looked like, you know, somebody rummaged through it and took everything they could find. And this is not the only time this has happened. I think I mentioned on some other podcasts, it seems almost every time I go to the grocery store these days, anything in that frozen breaded category is, you know, the, the shelves are really picked over or empty. And I, I don't think it's just a stocking problem with these stores. I think the demand is... You know, as, you, as everybody knows, is soared. Now, of course, will it continue when the restaurants open up? Uh, you know, that's that's a whole another topic. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, these these companies who once seemed very tired and you know not exciting are are now a tip of the spur or tip of the spear, as 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 they say, as far as seafood right now. So there you go. But just looking over on the other side of the ocean, it's the same trend. So we are uh, right now, Seafish, uh, the UK Seafood Association, um, has uh, released its latest figures um, that Nielsen puts together, um, tracking the, the moving annual trends on seafood sales. And the, the numbers are, are shocking uh, with uh, frozen uh, whitefish in particular. Um let me, let me just read you a couple percentage increases just because it's right in front of me. And it, it, again, it's it's amazing. Um, frozen cod fish fingers up 21%. Uh, frozen breaded cod up 30%. Uh, frozen prepared cod 42%. And on and on and on. We're talking, you know, I'm looking right now at the frozen cod category right now. Every one of these is up by double digits with only one exception. So that that is just absolutely phenomenal. It, you look at, at Pollock, um, same thing. Obviously, um, you know, it's it's um, a, a little bit more narrow in how it's sold, um, primarily going to be in in uh, in fish fingers. Um, but also, you know, also frozen, there's frozen bagged and things like that. There's there's portions. Um, however, same thing, double digits um, all the way across the board for uh, for frozen Pollock in the UK over the last 52 weeks. It's just absolutely um, phenomenal. So, you know, this is the bread and butter uh, for Bird's Eye Igloo, uh, for companies like Young's, uh, Highliner, um, Trident Seafoods, etc., etc. So, 
um, this is really, really, uh, this has really, really been a change. And I think the, the, the big thing that all of them are, are saying when they're releasing their earnings are, hey, we're doing everything we can to keep these uh, customers in the category. Um, so it, it's interesting. On the one hand, you have these traders squeezed. On the other hand, you have processors uh, also who are buying raw material and processing and selling to retailers doing quite well. Well, and since we're mentioning Pollock, I noticed that on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, one of them today, Craig Morris of uh, Gap, uh, posted something that I, I guess on the uh, popular trivia show Jeopardy uh, this week, Alaska Pollock was one of the um, answers that, um, you know, had to be solved or clues, I don't know. I don't know what they call them, but the the clue was Alaska Pollock is the key ingredient in this uh, alliterative McDonald's sandwich. Anybody know the answer? Oh, there you go. Another another win for Alaska Pollock on its quest to be recognized as a raw material. So, um, well, actually, you know what? That that's a kind of a, a nice uh, segue into the second thing I wanted to talk to you about today, which is eco labels. Um, and the Alaska Pollock sector certainly has had its um, interesting relationship with eco labels over the course of the past decade and a half or so. Uh, one of the first fisheries to get the Marine Stewardship Council label, the the American fishery I'm talking about right now. Um, and we're not happy about it. We're not happy about the process and, um, you know, spent a, spent a good long time complaining about it for a while there. Um, kind of made peace with it. But as part of that process, as part of the, the sort of grudge, I think, that a lot of major fisheries nations sort of held against the Marine Stewardship Council for its efforts or its certification efforts, um, they started looking at alternative eco-labels. Um, and, and that has been an interesting process. I, I, there hasn't really been a whole lot of stopping the MSC. Um, and if you recall, several years ago, the Alaska a salmon sector decided, um, nope, we're not going to reenter the MSC process because they were concerned that the, the or there were, was rumors or um, discussions that the fishery might not um, get its uh, certificate renewed. Um, and then that was sort of part of that was the genesis of what was called the Responsible Fishery Management Program um, and the RFM. And Alaska, Iceland um, both developed their own eco-labels to a lot of criticism because initially they were not uh, third party. They were it was kind of industry certifying itself, which doesn't make any sense. Um, and so that that's changed since that time. But um, but just this this week, um, Norway finalized uh, finalized a draft um, certification scheme for its cod and haddock fisheries. Um, and it has all of the major uh, fisheries uh, organizations on board. Um, you, you, you name it in Norway and, and people are on board with it. And the idea again is that they, there are Norway specific conditions that, um, that need to be taken to, uh, into account according to these groups. And so they've developed, um, 
NOFEMA, which is a, a research uh, institute in Norway, Fisheries Research Institute, they developed the um, the the standard, and it's really just sort of um, it's a little bit of time, a little bit of um, admin to get uh, to get that program kind of in place, but. It's interesting. I don't think the world needs another uh, eco-label or another certification scheme, but um, certainly uh, an alternative to the MSC or having something else there um, for fisheries that maybe aren't quite meeting every aspect of the MSC is um, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, what do you think, John? Yeah, I got I gotta say I was surprised by the news. I I kind of thought. I know the RFMs are still alive for Alaska and Iceland, but I kind of thought that the momentum of that had been kind of, um, you know, sucked away over the last few years, especially as MSC has become, you know, the undisputed leader in this this uh, area. But but no, I, yeah, I am. I don't know. I mean, to what end are 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 we doing this? You know, um, is it just because uh, there are certain things uh, with Norwegian fisheries that either don't fit into the MSC program, or I'm I'm, I'm really not clear um, on like the ultimate goal here. But um, yeah, I mean they're going forward with it. I mean Alaska, you know, uh, ASME was running uh, that RFM program for a while, but last year. Um, offloaded it to Certified Seafood Collaborative. Um, uh, so I haven't heard much about it since then, except I guess uh, I guess uh, maybe a little something Santa Monica Seafood signed on, uh, you know, late last year. But I don't know. I I I, I don't really understand the need for it. But I, I'm probably missing something here. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of it is just having an alternative, you know, and I think the MSC has, it has become such a powerhouse, um, which is weird to say about, uh, you know, an, an NGO, but it, it truly has. It has a lot of market power in the sense that if if you do not have MSC certification and you're a wild fishery, you're going to have a very difficult time getting into, at the very least, getting into European retailers. Uh, mm -hmm. Very difficult time. And increasingly in the U.S. as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think going out and marketing a new eco-label, um, I think that Alaska realized pretty quickly that that's not quite what you do with a, a certification like this. It's just sort of... Um, it's available. Maybe you could say it's um, sort of an Intel inside stamp um, like you would have on your computer, just saying, hey, this is um, has met certain standards. Um, so I, I can see the value in it, whether or not it's an actual consumer facing eco label. Mm, you know, I I don't know, but um, I think Norway's got enough uh, enough firepower with the Norwegian Seafood Council to, to push its brand forward. Um, but I want to talk about a, an, another uh, potential eco-label or another potential um, label in the U.S., that um, story that uh, Rachel Sapin, our, our colleague in Seattle, broke 
um, about the U.S. Department of Agriculture's uh, their National Organic Program will actually be meeting uh, on March 18th to discuss potentially uh, developing a an organic label for wild fisheries. Now, this isn't anything that hasn't been discussed before, um, but certainly not in any depth. It, it was sort of it, it was thrown out as an idea uh, in the early 2000s by uh, former Alaska Senator Ted, St- Ted Stevens and uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski. Um, and it was more of a, hey, why can't you call Alaska salmon organic? Um, and I think at that time there was concerns and debate over organic, what organic farm salmon would be. Organic farm salmon has not really expanded much movie uh does some in ireland there's some being done in scotland um it's kind of here or there some in norway uh, a little bit so but it hasn't really the value of it i don't think has uh outweighed the hassle uh of of actually getting it um you know of, of growing it and there there is some relationships developed between um groups like uh, Marks and Spencer and Waitrose, uh, I think, to um, to ensure they have that pipeline of organic product, which they're shoppers, which have a lot of money and a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, they're they're very eco conscious, but they have the <laughs> they have the expendable income to be eco conscious. Um, they uh, they've sort of uh, demanded that, but. I think this is very interesting. Uh, I don't know how far it will get. It's really, really challenging um, to give a organic certification to something that you don't know where it's been for the overwhelming majority of its life. Um, but, but I will say, do you get any more recognizable logo than the organic logo mm, probably not that i think that is equated with eco-friendly in most consumers mind around the world yeah i i mean i think this is doa i think it's dead on arrival myself and i'm not trying to be you know rude or anything about it i, I mean to me if you can't certify and I'm talking about the U.S. standards right now, if you can't certify a farm, uh, a fish farm, I, I have no idea how you can make the argument that you can certify salmon that leave Alaska, swim halfway to Japan, turn around, come back. I mean, you have no idea what they encountered uh, along the way. They could have encountered nothing and be pure as driven snow or they could have you know made their way through oil spills or toxic dumps uh, beneath the water i I just don't see it going anywhere but you know i've been wrong many times well let me question that logic because you know we also don't know where we don't know every second of an organic carrot's lifespan either we don't know what's going on under the ground necessarily, and we don't know what happens at night. We don't know what it goes and does if it hops out of the ground and goes, you know. Out <laughs> but we know a lot more. We know we a know lot more. Uh, well, we, <laughs> we know a lot more about a stationary plot of land or you know uh, a plot of water, 
and and the practices that go on uh, inside those worlds than we do about fish swimming, you know, you know, down in the water column that we can't even see. I, I, yeah, okay. Well, I'll take your carrot example, but uh, I don't, I don't agree with it. Drew one, John nil. No, so, no way. So, but I, you know, I think the fact that it's being discussed, though, because this does get into into the political arena, um, because that's all that matters with something like this. It doesn't really matter how we split hairs about where the fish has been or whatever, um, because I, I do agree with you, John, that 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 makes it it, it really calls into question <laughs> the idea of organic if it is a you know a a wild animal um i haven't done my homework enough to find out whether or not that's ever been applied to any land-based proteins like deer or whatever but uh i will check into that um but uh but it, it, it's politics and this is the kind of issue that's very unifying um lisa murkowski apparently has been behind this or you know kind of pushing this um and 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 that's helpful to Alaskans and to her constituents and her um her future prospects but it's also the kind of things that politicians in Washington uh who have to serve these large um seafood companies down here where the majority overwhelming majority of the pollock companies are based um it's a kind of issue that that the the senators in Washington state would support as well so I think the fact that it's on the agenda, it's one of the first things on the USDA's uh, agenda under the Biden administration. The National Organic Program um, has been around a while, but it's um, the, the efforts to get a, a, a program in place for aquaculture just kind of fizzled out. Um, you know, again, there was excitement and then, I mean, it's been dead for years. So the fact that it's on the agenda, I think, tells us that this is further along maybe than we think. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm watching this very, very closely because I think it's um, – whether or not it's pollocks or, or pollock or scallops or whatever, uh, how this will apply, I don't know. But there's always, there's always business interests. There's always lobbyists with their fingers in the pie on these things um, because what do what politicians know about these – particular issues um and if you look at who gets placed on these committees um to make these rules you know oftentimes there's industry members on there that have a lot of uh a lot of sway um and it's maybe the kind of issue that people don't really care too much about in 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 the halls of congress so um i think there's a shot that this would actually happen yeah no nope not gonna happen all right. Well, you can just en <laughs> you just enjoy your organic carrot then. Um, all right. Well, folks, let's leave it there. Uh, we have uh, some great stuff coming up uh, at the end of this month. We have our Seafood Outlook 2021. Uh, that's on March 23rd. You can go to intrafishevents.com and register there for the event. It's free. Uh, we've already got a great lineup of, of, of people registered for it. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. We'll, we'll be able to look into both the U.S. market, the U.K. market. We'll look at 
retail, we'll look at food service and the supply side for the, the major species. So um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So um, join us there again on March 23rd. Uh, also, don't forget, you can sign up for our newsletters. You can sign up for alerts. Again, this is a subscriber only feature. Um, just look for the little bells on our page and you would be able to track uh, any topic that you can imagine. If you just want to get Alaska Pollock news every time we publish a story on it, you can get that. Uh, if you want it monthly, weekly, you can set it up the way that you want. If you want to follow every time that Rachel Sapin produces a story or Rachel Mutter or John Evans or John Fiorillo or myself, um, you can track that as well. So um, check it out. Try it out if you're an Interfish subscriber. Uh, and, um, and again, you can find us there, 24-7, interfish.com. The news is coming uh, uh, fast and furious all the time, and we're keeping right on top of it. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.